Welcome to Rob's Reliability Project, a podcast for maintenance and reliability people to better themselves both at home and at work. Now let's get rolling. Welcome to Rob's Reliability Project. I'm Rob Kalvaroski. Thank you for listening to the show. And if you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe to Rob's Reliability Project on your favorite podcast platform, as well as share it with your colleagues. If you're looking for more content, check out or follow Rob's Reliability Project on LinkedIn and Facebook for some different types of content and check out robsreliability.com as well. If you're looking for a short daily audio tip, subscribe to Rob's Reliability Tip of the Day on your favorite podcast platform. As well, it's also available on Amazon Alexa as a flash briefing. So check that out. Finally, if there are any topics, guests you'd like to hear from, questions you want answered, or if you'd like to appear on the podcast, just send me an email to robsreliabilityproject at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Now let's get rolling. My guest, I'm excited about this interview. My guest, a world-class expert in reliability an active member of the SMRP, one of the best reliability people in the world, Ricky Smith. Hey guys, so I'm here with Ricky Smith. Uh, I mean, it's hard to give Ricky Smith an intro. He's everywhere. He's a reliability leader. He's written rules of thumb for maintenance and reliability engineers with Keith Mobley. And I just saw he posted, he's also written another book called Primitive Maintenance Made Simple. He's a reliability leader. He's been an active member with the SMRP for a long time. If you're not listening to his webinars, get on them. They're incredible. Ricky, how are you doing? Doing good. Thanks, Rob. So I, I guess I, I, I saw you posted Preventative Maintenance Made Simple just on LinkedIn about an hour ago. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what that book's about? Sure. Or Preventive Maintenance Made Simple. I wrote the book out of frustration. In fact, there's a lot of small books I have like this. They're on Amazon. And they've been written because when I go to a number of sites, in fact, a lot of locations with companies that have the same problem. Preventive Maintenance, we got 100% PM compliance, but we continue to have breakdowns. It's not logical. Something's wrong with the PM program. Either we lack discipline or, or it's not focused on the right thing. So the biggest thing I find is that preventive maintenance, like PM compliance, I tell people measure PM compliance or PM labor hours, just better, PM labor hours versus emergency urgent labor hours and trend them on a line graph. You'd be surprised what you see. It may even shock you. So this book, book takes it to, to a real finer step. I mean, much simple. I talk about that. I talk about reliability-based preventive maintenance. So there's a lot of great things in there. That will help you. And it's, let's see, how many pages is it? It's um, about 60 pages. So not very long. Quick read. Yeah, sounds like a great thing to take on the airplane. Exactly. That's what I was just saying. A lot of people don't get on airplanes, but they can, they can read it, you know, at break time or they can read it at home. You know, share it with your kids. You know, I'm sure they'll enjoy it. You know. <laughs> Use this as a bedtime story for them. You learn something at the same time. That's right. Get them into maintenance early. <laughs> yes. 
So Ricky, uh, you you just got back from Dubai where you were taking the CM, well you were teaching the CMRP course um, for world class maintenance. Um, do you want to give us a little breakdown? And, and like I also mentioned, you, you're a big uh, proponent and an active member of the SMRP. Do you want to give us a little breakdown of who's the SMRP and what's the CMRP and who's it for? What do people need to know to to pass that exam? Okay. And SMRP is Society for Maintenance and Reliability Professionals. There's chapters all over the U.S. and Canada, but also in many parts of the world. And one of the things about SMRP is run, managed, and operated by practitioners, not by some company. There is a company that facilitates everything, but it doesn't actually run the company. Now, there's some other things about this whole process with SMRP is, is that is that you have a community. It's a community that helps each other. And maintenance and reliability community is very close, very tight. So it's a great place to get to know others. And there, like I say, there are local chapters everywhere. Be- become a member. Become first, become a member SMRP and start looking at the things. If you go to smrp.org, and just look at the things that you get for free. One of the things that SMRP metrics and the metrics, there's a lot of metrics in this in this document. And it has the, it has all the criteria for metrics, what they require. And whether it's PM compliance, uh, whether it's you know reliability, whatever it is, mean time between failure, these metrics are in there. And the definition of how they're measured, if you don't like the way they're measured, at least you can take this format and use it yourself to adjust that procedure for your organization. And CMRP, I'm a certified maintenance and reliability professional since 2003. SMRP was founded in 1997 by a gentleman, John Day, and and many others that that are still members of SMRP. John's no longer, but he's well up there in age too. But he's the one, when I talk about world-class maintenance, he's the guy that created world-class maintenance. And he talked about world-class production through world-class maintenance. But so SMRP started in 1997. Not sure how many members there are now. But my objective that I see in SMRP is going out and give people an education in maintenance and reliability best practices and then proctor the certified maintenance and reliability professional exam at the end of the class. Because if you want to feel good about who you are, then the great thing to do is take the CMRP. Now, there's another one called the Certified Maintenance and Reliability Technicians. And I challenge maintenance technicians to take this exam. If you're a great maintenance technician, then take this exam. It's very simple. I think it's two and a half hours. I'm a CMRT also. When it first came out, I took it. I passed it. You know, I had no study material or nothing. I just got lucky I passed it. (laughs) I don't think that's luck, Ricky. (laughs) Yeah. So if I can pass it, you can pass either one of them. Now, I've got a book. I I have a book, Industrial Machinery Repair which I think is one of the best study guides there is. It talks about bearings. It talks about electrical devices, the things that you that a technician should know. So it's a good reference to use when you study for the, for the test, for the CMRT. 
But I challenge all maintenance managers now and maintenance supervisors, plant managers, challenge your technicians, take the certified maintenance and reliability technician exam. Google it. You'll see what it's all about. Yeah, absolutely. One thing I wanted to just make a point about the, uh, the CMRP is it seems like everywhere we, we talk about, you know, you don't you can't just pick up a book and pass this exam. You need experiential knowledge. How, how do you feel about that? Yeah, that's a good point, you know, because many people say, OK, what do I need to know to pass the exam? Well, first thing you have to have is experience, because if you're not experienced in maintenance and reliability, it doesn't mean you have to have turned wrenches or whatever, because there, there are a lot of people out there pass the CMRP exam that, but they have an understanding of maintenance and reliability best practices. That's what's important. I understand maintenance and reliability best practices. So when I teach a class, they want me to give them how to pass the exam. And I tell them it's very simple. Understand, listen, learn maintenance and reliability best practices. Get Make sure you got it in your head. And then learn the SMRP metrics, learn the SMRP body of knowledge, and then see what happens. I mean, the worst that can happen is you don't pass it and you take it again. I know many, some people have taken it numerous times, but most people will pass it the first time. Yeah, absolutely. We're going to shift gears here a little bit. So about a, a month ago, you posted a, a picture on LinkedIn about spare parts management and about how people introduce failures into their system because they mismanage spare parts. Do you want to kind of elaborate a little bit more for that for us? Sure. I was asked by the president of this company to come to this one plant that had a lot of problems in reliability, a lot. And, you know, changing a culture, you know, it'd be nice to say, read this book on culture and I'll come back when you got this proactive stuff figured out, but it's not going to happen. So I went in, you know, for five days. I gave an education first for the whole, every, all the leadership in the plant. And you get some of them that, you know, that they're excited. They want to make have change. But most of them are sitting back and say, yeah, we've heard this stuff before. Right. I know. That's why I'm here. Now, while I was there, when you talk about the storeroom, I went and looked at spare parts. And this, this lady that managed the storeroom, she was so proud of it. And I told her, I said, you know, Believe it or not, this plant's having a lot of problems because it starts right here in the storeroom. I said, have you ever been trained in how best storeroom practices? Because if you haven't, then we got a problem. And she didn't. She didn't, has never been trained in it. Now, I was easy with her because I was trying to explain to her. I said, let me show you some things. One is you have used gearboxes and gear motors in the storeroom. That's a no-no. If they haven't been rebuilt and restored, then we don't put them in the storeroom. The other was electric motors in there that were spares. And those electric motors were not ready to install. And what I mean by that, the shafts were rusted and so on. The way I was taught back in, gosh, 1980, was that when you had a shaft on a motor, because there's humidity in the air and it will rust on the shaft, when you put it on, you can't just put the, install the coupling, even if you heat it up, without polishing that shaft. I like to take it a step further. I want to polish the shaft. I want to put a light coat of grease on it, and I want to put a maybe a cardboard sleeve or something over it and tape it up. 
That way, when they go to install it, then it's at least the shaft is easy to install. Now, I'm going to move on to another thing. The shafts also on those motors must be turned one and a quarter turns. One and a quarter turns every month. Why? Because if they sit there, your plant, storeroom, wherever you're at on the earth vibrates all the time. If you don't rotate that shaft, then what's going to happen? Those bearings are going to get flat spots on them. Yeah, you can take them out, look at them and all that. But what happens is it accelerates failure. Instead of getting, you know, two years, 10 years, 30 years out of a motor, now you're getting three weeks, six months, five years. I want 20 to 30 years out of an electric motor. If you're getting less than that, pay attention. The other thing is putting large horsepower motors underneath vibration pads. It's, you can buy vibration pads, one-inch thick pads, put the, put the motors on top of them, set them on top of them in the storeroom so that you don't have them sitting there vibrating like they normally would. Now, you're still going to have some movement, but not as much, especially if you rotate one and a quarter turns every month. Now, I'm going to move on to some other items in the storeroom. Bearings that are open in the on the shelf. In other words, they're in a box. It says SKF on the outside, but somebody, for whatever reason, wants to look at the bearing. I mean, is there a problem here? I mean, maybe if you had all your parts assigned to an asset, assigned all the way down to the component level or part level, maybe we can now, we don't have to go to the storeroom and start opening boxes. All we have to do is we go in the storeroom, we go to the computer, we order the part, now understand, I know this is difficult sometimes, but in 1980, this was a requirement of employment where I worked. You had to go to the computer in 1980. We had the first fully integrated CMMS in the world. You had to order the part. It had to be charged to a work order. And by the time you walked to the storeroom, storeroom attendant had to sit in there waiting on you. If it was an electric motor, they had already brought it out with a forklift and dropped it on the floor on a pallet so you can pick it up and go. No wasted time. So storeroom is a different way of not only just how you store parts, but how you manage it also. Now, also, another one I saw that really frustrated me, V-belts. V-belts that are hung straight up and down. You got a, you got a some kind of rod sticking out or pipe or whatever, and you got it hanging on there. What do you think happens to that, that belt as it sags on there? It's, it, it, there's a probability, not 100%, but there's a high probability it's going to break the cords or stretch those cords in that belt on that one point. What you're supposed to do, those, they, especially large belts, they're supposed, they should be rolled up and put on a shelf, flat, not, you know, hanging down. Like in this one case, they were about 10 foot long. I mean, they were long ways up there. I, I didn't even know how to get them down. And the lady there said, I never seen anybody get one down. I said, oh yeah, oh yeah, they, they get them down. But it's a terrible place for the storeroom to start reliability problems. Yeah, like I've started uh, when I teach PF curves, I've started adding points to it. I Like I know Jason Tranner, he started putting an I before for installation. Yes. And I, I've also added, you know, like acceptance at the site and then also like manufacturer of the part. And then, so then people, and then you can really illustrate the, the different steps and where you can introduce failure. Yes, I, I mean, that's that's a big deal. I mean, when you install a part or component, how long before failure begins? 
And if we stored the part correctly, if we install it correctly and we maintain it correctly, that that I point to P on the PF curve is very long. But a lot of companies like the one I was talking about, it was very short. In other words, how long would it last? Who knows? So the I to P is a big deal. Having repeatable procedures, having specifications, and make sure we have qualified people and we verify they are following those procedures. I want an initial by every step, and I want a signature at the bottom. So it, it makes sense to follow rules and do things the right way. Otherwise, we will pay for it dramatically. Because in downtime, yeah. it costs. Okay, I could talk all day about the storing, but all right, let's move on to the next topic. Absolutely. I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. So, so let's switch gears a bit. So we always talk about, like as a culture, as a, you know, a, a company, we always talk about reliability being a culture and, and really the only way to get to world-class maintenance or world-class reliability is to have a proactive maintenance culture. How do you take companies on that journey from a reactive mindset to a proactive mindset? Typically, you know, what I like to do before I even talk about it, I want to get the financial information and look at the financials and compare it to other companies. And I don't mean sharing it with anybody. I I have to sign a confidentiality statement with them. And then once I do that, once I go through that, then we can move on to the next step. And that is to educate senior leadership, educate them what maintenance and reliability practices brings to them and what it looks like. It's a total change in the way you look. I tell people that when you move from where you are now to a proactive state, it's like you're always looking straight ahead all the time. Now I'm asking you to look behind you. And it's very difficult for you to turn that way with your head. You'll have to turn your body. That means we got to change. We got to change direction in the way we're going. So the first step to me are those steps. And then the next one is, to educate the plant staff and put a plan together. How are you going to, and that takes an assessment, assess where they are against best practices, against world-class. And then once you assess them against it, put a master plan together with them with steps and targets and goals. And these are typically in metrics, but also in costs, you know, capacity. So these things I need to have on this Microsoft project and you can use whatever you want to use. You can use Excel or whatever. I like Microsoft Project. I went on there because I want to know who the person that is responsible for a task, and that's the doer, accountable, buck stops here, consulted. In other words, I need to have communication with this person and inform. And then that's just let you know what's going on. And then from there, we can have success. We need to have some kind of meeting once a month. Believe me, things will get worse before they get better. I promise you that. You just had to be patient. So how do you get people over the hump? Like where, where it gets worse? Well, you got to have what I call the quick wins. You know, you look for those quick wins. So there are things, simple things that, that you can do that can give you quick wins. One is, <laughs> but I'll post something today on ultrasound. Um, go out and, you know, have 
look at what these companies like UE Systems, there's a number of companies that sell these devices, and how they come in and demonstrate it and have them identify all the air leaks in your plant. And they also have, they should have a software with that that calculates the, you know, how much money you're losing versus that air leak. What, you know, how much is it costing you to leak that much air every day, every minute, every second? And then you, as you go identify those leaks, just don't identify them and come up with some number. I want to hang orange tags on every leak. And I want to put a one, and that means it's going to go on some work order and references that one you see hanging in the sky or hanging on a machine or wherever it is. And then once I get through all of these, then I can determine how much money is on the table. Now, 100% of the people I know that have gone through this have seen tremendous results. What do I mean by that? Like I, I spoke to a gentleman the other day, a friend of mine. He said, wow, Ricky, when I went through this, we end up, instead of having three compressors, we went to two. And it looks like we may end up going to one. In other words, they had standby compressors, but because of the air leaks started getting worse over time, you can't hear them because the machine's running, that once it started getting worse, then they had to add on another compressor. You know, this one's wearing out, but that's not the true statement. So this is a simple one that can make you a lot of money very quickly and your energy costs go down. That means your power bill goes down dramatically. Yeah, that's a that's an amazing tip. I tell you, people they don't get it. I mean, I, I did it in a plant not too long ago in New Jersey, and it was amazing what we brought back. I mean, they shut down one compressor, didn't need it. Now they cycled it, you know, on some period, you know, depending on what type of compressor and all that. But they they had it where one would come on, and then once that one came online, then the other one shut down, and it would reverse back and forth every thirty days. But their their power consumption dropped thirty percent for the plant. A lot of money. Warning: Don't take this step until you're ready to ask for more money to help you optimize maintenance and reliability. Because it's not free; it costs money. A lot of people think that you can sort of buy reliability in a sense that, like, you can throw you know hundred thousand or a million dollars at it and get it within a year. How long does changing that culture take? Wow. Some will never get there. You know, I've actually been, been at sites that I just tell them it's not going to ever happen here. You know, I mean, it's, it's true. I mean, you can feel it. You can talk to the people and so on. But most sites will change. How long would it take? That's why I need the quick wins first. I want people, they've seen enough of these programs whether it's statistical process control or some other type program we brought into the plant, but they're, they get old to them. They don't see the benefits. But when you optimize maintenance and reliability, wow, you see the benefits and you should have quick wins up front that pays for that program for some period of time. So we want to come out first with a quick wins and sustain those quick wins and then continue to evolve from there throughout our master plan. Absolutely. Yeah. So one thing I wanted to ask you as well is what is the biggest mistake you see reliability people making when they're trying to change the culture? Wow. Tough question. I guess not um, following what they know should be done. 
Sometimes they get swayed by management, and I've had management try to sway me quite a few times, and I had to just tell them, you know, hey, I'm just going to be respectful. I appreciate you asking me to come, but this is not going to work. You know, it's not the right match for you and I as a company and myself because, you know, I've done this enough times that I know what works. And I've had people tell me, well, that doesn't work here. Well, then how many times have you proven? How many, when, how long have you worked for a world-class maintenance organization, world-class production organization? You know, that's the question. But I try to be very respectful and humbling. And sometimes you got to walk away. Yeah, I think that's a great tip in life. Yes. In fact, I'd say that probably you're looking at upwards between 60 and 70% of companies will really be successful because they don't have the disciplines to the new world we live in now. Lack of discipline is a big deal. You know, everybody wants instant gratification. You know, I, I'm going to do that with this change, but I'm also going to make this long-term change that occur. And change is not easy. It's the hardest obstacle, the most difficult obstacle we're going to have in changing maintenance and reliability best practices in a plant. No doubt. No doubt. So uh, let's switch gears a little bit. And so recently I've seen a lot of kind of technologies pop up like artificial intelligence, augmented reality, virtual reality. And I still kind of, at this point in time, I still believe that kind of what I call reliability fundamentals, which is a lot of the precision maintenance stuff that you talked about, plus like, you know, understanding failure modes and that kind of stuff. I still believe that that is the key focus and people get distracted with the new technologies. How do you see, like, how do you feel about that? And where do you see reliability going over the next couple of years? Well, you know, there's new technology coming out all together, all, all the time, you know, every day. New technology, new ideas, new concepts and all. But the bottom line, it gets down to you're going to have to have a disciplined process. You're going to have to stabilize your organization to move from that reactive culture to a more proactive culture and reduce this reactivity that's causing you losses every day, every minute. We've got to do something different. Yeah, and I think I think a lot of people right now think that artificial intelligence is going to be able to find like solve all their problems, and I think that they're going to be mistaken in a few years. The human is going to interact with that machine, and we're not going to get away from it. You know, when they thought when PLCs first come out, you know, and the distributed control systems come out, I tell you when when they came on the market, a lot of companies stopped working. Because they did not understand the technology. Technology will improve, but we have to embrace that technology. We have to be willing to accept it, but it's a crawl, walk, run methodology with it. You just don't push a button and turn this new technology on. If it's a new plant, yes. But if it's a new site, a new plant, my recommendation is you hire the right people. Hire smart people. I'm talking about highly intelligent people that understand maintenance and reliability and are willing to do the right thing. We lost the last part of the Ricky Smith interview. A uh, few things before we wrap up. First off, thank you to Ricky Smith for joining us on Rob's Reliability Project. 
I learned a ton of stuff from this interview. He was a great interview. He brought a ton of value. If you're not already, follow Ricky Smith on LinkedIn. Just search Ricky Smith CRL, CMRP, CMRT, and he'll pop up. Or he's also Ricky Smith connected with me. Other than that, subscribe to the podcast. It's on nine or ten different platforms. Go to anchor.fm slash Rob's Reliability Project. Subscribe to, to it on your favorite platform.